Hey, murder lovers, my name's Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Before we jump into my story, my story... So, I was on our Instagram stories the other day, letting you guys know that I was listening to We Are Supported By. It's a podcast under Armchair Expert Umbrella with Dax Shepard. Dax Shepard, okay. Yeah, so Kristen Bell and I think her name is Monica Padma his co-host from Armchair Expert, they're doing a podcast called We Are Supported By. Okay. And they're interviewing Oprah. And I was like... Jesus. First of all, you made it. Second, seriously. I was like, you know what would make a great podcast is the Oprah show. Like, why haven't they turned Hmm. her show into podcasts? Well, somebody already thought of it and they had. So (laughs) I went and found her podcast and started listening to some of the episodes, which like... Oprah, late 90s, early 2000s is just like prime. my, it's my favorite Oprah. Yeah, just prime. Like, get into She's, it. She's. Questions are good. Like, it's just, her yeah. interview style is just completely it's different. so great. Towards the end, I struggled sometimes with her interviews with, like, leading questions and stuff mm. like that. But, like, these, like, 10 years there where I was like, oh, she was just, like, the queen. <laughs> so... I went and I found this particular podcast episode, and I was like, that is an interesting story. I have to cover it. So this is the story of David Crespi, and I'm going to just, like, trigger warning for some of you. This does involve, I don't know, like, the official word, but basically, like, parental homicide, like, a parent killing their children. Oh, didn't we... we, um... I think it's called patricide, or... Yeah, parasite or something. It's something like that. Matricide <laughs> is not the murder of a mattress. It's something with a mother. Yeah, so if that is not within your realm of headspace right now, this is not the episode for okay. you. Come back next time. So parental homicide. Not the homicide of a parent, but a parent committing homicide. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yes. So. Okay. Well. Do with that what you will. Okay. All right. So some of her episodes are true crime. Yeah. So, well, and if you know Oprah, um, she, you know, wide range of stuff. So like this week was a Dr. Oz special and I was like, next. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she does like some of her lifestyle makeovers, her like financial stuff, but she also like notoriously interviewed people that had committed crimes and talked to them. In right. fact, there's an episode on there where she interviews the sister of John Wayne Gacy Ooh. and and the son of Jim Jones in one episode. Ooh. And then she also has an episode where she interviews the sister-in-law of Scott Peterson and why she thinks he is guilty. So there's like several that are really, really, really good on there. Yeah. Um, but... Like exclusive interview type things or people... Yes. Interviews that people that have not had that much airtime before. Yeah. And like people like in this particular case, she actually goes to the prison to interview the person after they're taken into custody. So okay, like Oprah, she, I mean the exclusive <laughs> access, I could only dream one day. She could knock on any door and be let in. Yeah, pretty much. Not have to say anything. No, she just shows up. I am Oprah. I Hi, I am Oprah and Hello. I am here. <laughs> Set up. Right. <laughs> so, um, like I said, this is the story of David Crespi. I don't know a whole lot about him, like, childhood-wise or anything like that. Basically, the story that I know of him starts when he's in college. 
Okay. He does meet his eventual second wife, Kim, while he is at California State University in Sacramento. They are both business majors, and they become friends. Um, they spend a lot of time in the same classes, the same clubs, stuff like that. But they do not get married at this point. David graduates with top honors in certified public accounting and certified internal auditor. But when he graduates, he marries his high school sweetheart, whose name is Kimberly. Not to be mistaken with Kim. Gotcha. (laughs) Just happen to have the same name. Okay. So they get married a year after graduating college. He works as a public accountant, and then he becomes the CFO of a bank in Sacramento. Ooh. Life is good. They have two kids together, but then Kimberly is diagnosed with a brain tumor during their marriage, and she actually dies a year after her diagnosis. Oh, wow. So... At this point, some time has passed since college. Ten years have actually passed since college. And he reconnects with Kim. And they actually get married in 1994. So I don't know what leads to their reconnection or anything like that. But this is her story. They reconnect in 1994. She adopts his two kids, Jessica and Dylan, from his previous relationship. And then together, they have their son, Joshua, and identical twin girls, Tessera and Samantha, who also go by Tess and Sam. Okay, cool. They uh, relocate to Charlotte, North Carolina in 2001 for David's job. He does quite well with his job, even though he does struggle with anxiety and insomnia. Okay. So he, in 2003, is also diagnosed with testicular cancer. So he undergoes treatment for this um, only for like a few months, which is interesting because testicular cancer used to almost be like kind of a death sentence but now the treatment for it's so advanced as most things are with men in medicine mm-hmm. um that his treatment literally was from october to december he did two months of treatment oh, wow. and boom he was done super cool yeah so i think it went from if i remember right it had like a it was like a less than 10 or less than 14% survival rate when Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband had it. So you can kind of like estimate time-wise based on her husband versus now I think it has a 90-something percent survival wow, rate. that's huge. But he did fall into a deep depression in March of 2004. And so he had always kind of struggled with bouts of depression. In fact, his wife said that he had six significant episodes of depression during their marriage hmm. that she couldn't recall. Um, and it's so, very specific. Yeah. Well, when you have to <laughs> timeline things out at some point, you're yeah. able to nail these things down for a reason. So to her recollection, there were, had been like six significant ones. In yeah. California, he had kind of like a mental health team and people that really mm. like um, understood like his history and stuff like that. Um, but they had moved to North Carolina. So they had to mm. reestablish care at this point. And he... Started seeing a therapist and began a medication routine, which he had done in the past. He assured his wife and his therapist that he wasn't going to hurt himself. He wasn't going to hurt his family. Everything was fine. Like, he was just really, really struggling. And the thing is, is he would get anxiety, so they would treat him for anxiety, but then he wouldn't be able to sleep, which they said was also something with anxiety, so they'd treat him for the sleep, but that would make him depressed, so then they'd have to start treating him for depression, and, like, oh it was basically, like, this vicious cycle of medications and illnesses and not really being able to figure out, like, was the anxiety causing the insomnia? Was the insomnia causing the anxiety? Which one was causing the depression? Was the depression causing one of these, like... Sure. Which was actually the issue and which was symptoms of the issue. Right. 
he began taking a medication called Paxil. And one of the side effects of Paxil, this is an antidepressant, is uh, weight gain. And he actually gained 50 pounds while he was on this medication. And so his doctors, and he kind of talked about this, and his significant weight gain in such a short period of time Mm -hmm. was causing other health issues. Oh, okay. So they were like, we got to... We gotta stop with the Figure Paxil. Something else out. Yeah, so they started the process of withdrawing off Paxil, mm. but that they said like the side effects of withdrawal from that particular medication can last anywhere from six months to two years. Whoa! Which I had no idea that that could linger around like that. But that's basically like your body trying to restabilize chemically mm-hmm. after you're coming off of this medication. He started having significant side effects from the withdrawal, and uh, he kind of began spiraling even more so, and by now we're in January of 2006. And so his psychiatrist at that point was like, well, we can't do Paxil because obviously like your weight gain and everything like that, so let's try Prozac instead. Okay. And so his wife was like, well, what is a side effect of Prozac? And he was like, actually, it can cause weight loss. And they were like, beautiful. (laughs) Um, and he was like, you might see like some more agitation, but usually this is a result of like the, you know, the weight balancing out and stuff like that. And so they were like, okay, prepared for agitation and hopefully weight loss. Like these sound great. So leading up into the date itself, January 20th of 2006, David was on the following medication. He was on, had been on 10 days of Baxin XL which is an antibiotic for a respiratory infection that he had. Oh, man. He had been on trazodone for 10 days, which is an antidepressant for anxiety, which I have seen somebody on trazodone before, and holy moly, the paranoia. Really? When, like, things snap, they snap. What is that a medication for? It's an antidepressant for anxiety. Okay. So it functions as an antidepressant, but it's also supposed to minimize agitation Mm. the problem is is like when it breaks through like when Mm -hmm. all that like your agitation stuff breaks through that medication it can like really result in like this crazy psychosis gotcha um with like a lot of paranoia even like i would say borderline some hallucinations Hmm. from my experience and what i've seen it's just it's a very intense medication and things when it goes bad on that medication it goes real bad um, he had been on Ambien for seven nights because he had not been sleeping, but the Ambien okay. wasn't helping him sleep. So he had gone to the therapist on January 19th and they had given him Lunesta. So he had been on Lunesta for one night at that point. Um, and then he had been on Prozac for seven days. That's a lot of medication. It's a lot of medication and a lot of medication that essentially is supposed to be doing the same thing like trazodone right. and prozac they're could, overlapping yeah a lot. and they're, then ambient and lunasta yeah i i'm assuming and hopefully that it's all the providers are all communicating on what's being given to him but. well it sounds like for the most part it's the psychiatrist that's okay prescribing at this point but the antibiotic would not be from sure him. So, like I said, they had been to the therapist's office on January 19th where they had gotten the sample of Lunesta because he wasn't sleeping. And at that point, Kim was like, you know, he's really starting to scare me. Like, he's Mm. waking up at night and just pacing back and forth. Okay. And, you know, the therapist was like, do you feel like you're going to hurt yourself? And he was like, no. 
But then he started talking about how he was scared of losing his job. And they were like, you're not going to lose your job. And he was like, I'm afraid that, um, like, couldn't, he was afraid that he was going to be, like, financially ruined, that they were headed for bankruptcy, that he wasn't going to get his bonus this year. He wasn't going to be able to, like, afford to take care of his family. All of these fears that were really coming from nowhere. Little did he know um, at this point that his... Uh, office had actually just signed off on his biggest bonus to date the year before his bonus had been $45,000 and they were getting ready to top that wow but he in his brain had convinced himself that he was headed for financial ruin and he was like we're gonna I'm gonna lose my job we're gonna go bankrupt we're gonna this we're gonna that and the therapist and his wife were like that's not true like David that's not true like none of that stuff is true it's not real okay and so they would tell him that the thoughts in his head were not real yeah and so he was like oh well if that's not real then the other stuff that I'm thinking isn't real uh oh And so they had their session with the therapist. He then went with his wife to Dylan's drum lesson. And Kim said in the parking lot, it was clear that David was seeing things. And now she believes that he was hallucinating, but Mm -hmm. she didn't recognize it for what it was at the time. She didn't elaborate on what those hallucinations were or what he was seeing. But that's what she has stated was that she thinks that he was seeing things that day. Probably just turning his head like he saw something or a shadow or Maybe. something or, or something like that. Said something about something yeah. that wasn't there. Um, he tried to sleep that night when they got home, but really couldn't. And so, on January twentieth, his mom called at like eleven thirty in the morning and checked in with him just to see how he was doing because she knew that he was struggling. He had taken the week off of work to adjust to his new medication and get his feet under him and stuff like that because he hadn't been sleeping. That's probably what he thought was going to lead up to him either being fired or whatnot. Maybe he had to be using PTO to get his medications right or, you know, work was probably fine with it, but he, of course, is thinking he's underperforming or something. And so his mom called at 1130. He talks to her. Everything's fine. He's like, it's fine. We're, you know, we're trying this new medication. This is the plan, blah, blah, blah. Everything is good. And then his wife leaves for a haircut at 12.05 in the afternoon. His twin daughters, Tess and Sam, are home from school that day because they have colds. Okay. And Mm -hmm. so they hadn't gone to school that day. Kim leaves for her haircut. And she's not worried about it, even though he hasn't really been sleeping and hasn't really been acting himself. She said he's always been a loving, affectionate father, never shown any sign of violence whatsoever. And so she doesn't even think twice about it. And they had just talked yesterday in therapy about him assuring her that he had no desire to hurt anyone so like there was nothing there that she was like no red flags so when kim returned at 120 after her haircut she found a police barricade in front of her house (gasps) no when kim had left for her haircut that day david (sighs) acted on the worst thoughts that he hadn't shared with anybody no he had been fantasizing about Killing his wife, killing his kids, running his car over neighbors. Oh, my God. He wanted to take people out, basically. And that day, he had been hearing voices telling him to kill his family. Oh, no. So when the girls stayed home from school that day with colds, he convinced himself that they were suffering from depression, too. Oh, my God. And the only way he was going to save his daughters from dealing with the severe depression that they were experiencing, according to his head, was to take them out of the world. Because he said the world was too dark for his kids. 
Oh my goodness. And so the girls had approached David to play hide and seek. It was their favorite game. And so David said, yep, let's play hide and seek. And he said that he took this as a sign to kill them, that they wanted to play hide and seek. Oh, this is awful. And so the girls went to hide and David found Samantha hiding in the kitchen and took two knives (gasps) and began stabbing her. And he stabbed her 18 times in the chest, back, and head. Oh, my God. And she's five at this point. I don't think I mentioned that. They're five. And Tess sees David attack her twin sister and runs and hides in the master closet that's off of the bathroom. And five? She can hear her sister Sam yelling no and screaming for her mommy. And so when David finishes stabbing Samantha to death... He goes up and he finds Tess hiding in the closet. And the closet used to be her favorite hiding spot. That's where she always played hide and seek when the neighbor kids were over. And he drags her out of the closet and stabs her 14 times. My goodness. And he said that he treated this as a task that he had to do. He had no association with it being his daughter's. Mm. There was no like, connection to that whatsoever. And when he was asked why he had to kill both of them, he said, well, they're twins. They had to go together. What? And when he's explained to Oprah later on when she interviewed him. Oh, I'm sorry. She talked to him? Oprah interviewed him. Right. So when Oprah says, well, why did you kill both? He said, well, when you're parenting twins, you can't show favoritism. Uh, What? So by leaving one of them alive, it would have been favoriting yeah. them over the other. My God. So then he, after both girls are dead, he refuses to go back and look at the bodies. He instead washes his hands, goes and changes his clothes, and then what? he calls, he contemplates killing himself. And he thinks he, he's going to go get in his car and he's going to go drive to an overpass and get out and jump off the overpass onto the freeway with passing cars. But... He had promised his wife that he wasn't going to kill himself. So instead, he calls 911. Now, to listen to the 911 call, you're going to have to go over to our TikTok. Because I will post the 911 call over there. um, And that is Stranger Danger Podcast on TikTok. That's where you're going to find it. But just to give you kind of a play out, he says... The 911 operator answers, and he says, I just killed my two daughters. That's that's what he says? Yeah. And the operator says, what happened? And he says, I freaked out, and I killed them. And then he tells the operators that he stabbed them with a knife. And then the operator says to keep talking. She's like, keep talking to me because you sound tired. Have you taken any medication today? And he's like, yes. And she says, it sounds like you've taken too much medication. So keep talking to me. So she already like picked up on the fact that this man was highly medicated. Right. And she. God, (laughs) 911 operators, they're like, they have like an eighth sense, I swear. Yeah, it's bizarre. But I mean, once you hear it enough. Oh, I'm sure that too, but. But man, they, yeah, they're in tune. Yeah. And at one point she asks him, she goes, where did you stab them? And he goes, on their bodies. She goes, I figured on their bodies. Where on their bodies? And he just says, on their bodies. Yeah. Oh. And then she says, where, where on their bodies? And he says, all over. Oh, God. 
And then David keeps going, this is real. This is real. Because remember, they're he's trying to... Con- that? He's telling them se- himself that, but he's saying it to the operator. Because sure. remember, in therapy yesterday, his wife and his therapist have kept telling him, your thoughts aren't real. Right. And so he's telling the operator, this is real. This is real. And the operator goes, I know it's real. I believe you. Everybody's on their way. But he keeps saying, this is real. Because he's having he's to like, convince himself that this isn't just a thought. This is actually right. happening. And then the operator says, is there anything that can be done to help the girls? And he says, no. My God. Kim has come home at this point. It's 120. Oh. Nobody has called her. Nobody's given her a heads up. This is all happening as she's coming home from her salon appointment. Oh so she pulls up goodness. to police barricade. She says, a van gets let through. And then she comes next and they stop her. And they ask her to get out of the car. And they tell her, your daughters have been murdered and your husband has confessed. Whoa. So she's like trying to process the fact that her daughters have been murdered. And then they tell her, by the way, your husband did this. So it's like double whammy. Oh my God. And then David watches as the police carry Tessa's body out in a body bag. Oh, wow. And he's arrested, obviously. Um, and at that point, they discover that he's actually been thinking about killing his family for the last 11 years. <gasps> Whoa. He's never discussed it with anybody. He's never said anything to anyone. He said that it was only thoughts, but again, it wasn't real. So he didn't discuss it with anyone because it a wasn't long real. Time. And he said he didn't discuss it because he was worried that he would say this and his kids would get taken away from him. Oh, God. Oops, Sorry. So once in custody, his wife had to wait two and a half months before she was allowed to visit him because technically she was considered a victim of his crimes. And so there was more added layers to actually them being able to visit than if it was just somebody that was taken into custody. Like if somebody I knew was taken into custody, but I was not a direct victim of their crimes, I could see him the next day. Right. But since she's technically a victim, there are all these other layers mm-hmm. that go into it. The family has since asserted that this was a result of the medication that he's on. Okay. In prison, David was diagnosed with bipolar disorder with severe depression, which the family was like, bipolar disorder. Right, bipolar like, this is never, Yeah, this has never been something that was brought to our attention. Right. The, despite their assertion of medication and everything like that, the state pursued the death penalty, even though the family was, like, protesting it, and they were like, no, that does not, no. Yeah. No. The DA's like, no, I'm not taking that into account. I'm right. doing this. At least that's what they told David they were going to do, that they were going to pursue the death penalty. And it was because of this that he accepted a plea deal for murder one. Technically, I don't think that he would have gotten the death penalty because of his history of mental illness, but also sure. because his own wife was saying no, mm-hmm. like this doesn't fit the jury. There's never in a million years would a jury have been like, well, if the wife is sitting, no, I don't want my husband to have the death penalty. I'm the direct victim. And they're like, too bad. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. The defense probably would have put on her stand and on the stand. And right. The but jury would have heard that. Yeah. David's family wasn't really there with him to reason with him as mm-hmm. far as this goes. And he probably would have gotten a lighter sentence if he had actually gone to trial. Mm-hmm. But he took the plea deal for murder one. He was sentenced to two life sentences that needed to be served consecutively. So about a year after the crime, Oprah's team comes a knocking. And they're like, 
Hi, I'm Oprah. <laughs> and they were like, you're here for an interview. And she was what like, yes, I am. What do you yes, need, I queen? <laughs> <laughs> we are here to serve. Now his wife and I, it sounds like David, are pretty unhappy with how the Oprah interview went. Oh, really? Um, they got fixated on a couple things. Um, I think there's a lack of understanding between parties, which I will explain. But they agreed to do the Oprah interview. And Kim thought that this was a great opportunity. She thought that this was going to take the approach of this could happen to anyone. Sure. These are the warning signs to look for. This kind of stuff. Like, let's help someone. Right. She's taking the approach of, like, you know, someone with a mental illness was trying to get help, but this medication did them a disservice more than anything. Right. Okay. Now, if you look at her website, there the wife has a website. She said that Oprah implied or inferred that David basically made the choice to kill his daughters Mm. and that this was all a choice. But that's not what actually was said by Oprah. And so that's what I mean. There's a, there's a lack of understanding between the parties. So on her website, she said that Oprah incorrectly assessed that David had a choice in the matter and he had made the wrong choice. But after listening to the end review, I, I genuinely, like, just don't agree. I think that words are being taken out of context here. Mm. So what Oprah had said was that he'd made the wrong choices leading up to the event itself. Okay. And basically that when he was at the therapist's office and they're talking about him harming himself and hurting himself and okay. hurting his family, he should have said something then. Oh, this has been an, right. He's had these ideas for 11 years sure. and nobody ever knew. So why didn't you tell your therapist? Why didn't you tell your wife? You talked to your own mother that morning, mm-hmm. literally like 30, 45 minutes before this actually happened. Right. Why didn't you tell her that like things were getting bad really fast? And what Oprah was saying is not that he made the choice to, to kill his kill. daughters, but... That he had made a choice along the way to not ask for the help that he really needed. That's hard. Yeah. And, but. Because there's so much stigma about talking in general about your mental health. And just when you, yes, it's good that he's talking to a therapist and that he's voicing some of his concerns and some of his thoughts. But, you know, he is a smart man. Mm -hmm. He was, he had a, a very good career in financial world. So. Um, I, I I think it goes without saying that he's a really smart man. So he knows b- the difference between right and wrong when he's right. not having um or you know mental health crisis. So when he's probably sitting in front of a therapist, he knows that these thoughts are going to be frowned upon. Right. And like you said, he thought that if he were to voice something like that, that he wanted to harm his family, that his children would get taken away. His family that he did love right. would get taken away. So he's a smart man in the way that he knows I shouldn't be saying that. Plus, they're telling me everything else in my head is not real. So right. I shouldn't, I, I don't have to say it out loud. It's weird because I get it. Maybe he should have talked about it. Right. But I see why he probably didn't. Yeah. And Oprah was very adamant, like, this is the lesson. This is the lesson we're taking away is that when things get this bad, you say something, you ask for help. Like, you don't allow your own fears mm-hmm. to get in the way of you doing what's right to like save yourself and save your right. family or whatever. And his wife was like, I don't think that's a lesson. No, the lesson it's, not was... a bad, it's not a bad lesson to take away. No, it's not. It's not. But the Definitely wife asked for help. Her, but... What she had hoped for was that the lesson 
would be like, this could happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. And Oprah was like, no, the lesson is that you like ask for even the worst kind of help, like the deepest, darkest type of help. Mm -hmm. Um, when faced, I think both parties have definitely like a stance in that. Oprah did not say that David had a choice in killing his daughters. That's not what she said, but that is what the wife is saying. She said, I'm like, I listened to the interview myself. Ultimately, Oprah held David responsible for what had happened. Kim and David didn't really agree with that. Oprah asked why he didn't kill himself, and then he said, like, I promised my wife that I wouldn't. And Oprah was like, I really wish that you had promised that you wouldn't hurt the kids. And David was like, I do too. Yeah. And you could tell, Oprah said at the beginning of the interview that she didn't really want to do the interview. And you could tell. Like, you could tell that she was irritated. I think she was irritated that she felt like, when you listen to David talking in the interview, it's clear he's still medicated. Mm. And he does lack a sense of accountability. And he does come off as being emotionally disconnected. Mm Mm-hmm. And Oprah's kind of like, you killed your daughters. Right. Why is that not resonating with you? And the wife, it's interesting because, like, they are very consumed with how David appears Mm -hmm. and wanting empathy for David and David being the victim in all of this. And they don't really seem to... Hold them accountable for... Well, and it's not even that. It's It's like... The girls are the victims. In right. This. And that doesn't really seem to be at the forefront of David and Kim's approach to this. Right. And I think Oprah picked up on that. Gotcha. And was bothered. Yeah. I would be too. If I had this platform where now I was able to talk to someone, yeah. I'd be like, why aren't you focusing on the right thing and saying, you know, my daughters, I guess maybe Kim and David should have approached it where, like, hey, my daughters were the victims of. This wrong pharmaceutical approach. Yeah. But instead, it's David, David is the victim. David is the victim. Of... No. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's the girls. And so then Oprah says... This one was like... It floored me. When she asked if he... You know... if Or when she said, I wish you'd promised that you wouldn't hurt the kids. He was like, me too. And then she says, I wonder if your wife had known what was going to happen if she would have basically opted to save the girls over you. Like, if it came down to you killing yourself or mm-hmm. you killing the girls. She asked that? Yeah. If she if she was kind of like, hmm. would what would she have done? Like, which promise would she have asked you to keep, basically? Yeah. If you had promised both and it came down to a choice between the two, which one would she ask you to keep? And David was like, you're going to have to ask her that. Hmm. And she was like, I will. So she did. Okay. <laughs> And Kim was like, well, I don't want any of them to die, obviously. Like, that is right. that is the correct answer. I don't want any of them to die. But she was like, I just don't believe that he, that he had the right sense and, like, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, didn't want any of them to die and didn't feel like that was really, like, the correct question. Which was interesting, though, because Oprah's asking these questions to him. And then she comes back to Kim, who's actually in the studio with her. And Kim has told her good questions. So she felt at the time that Oprah was asking him good questions. Right. But later on was like... Well, she probably went over and, and yeah. overanalyzed everything after the interview was out, you know, or mm-hmm. maybe how it got edited. So Oprah asked him, like, what she felt like would be a good punishment. 
David said that he didn't believe in the death penalty before this happened and still doesn't believe it. And he didn't believe that he deserved to die. He did believe that he deserved to be punished, but didn't say to what extent he Mm. felt like he should be punished. Oprah asked him why he didn't tell anyone how he was feeling. And David only responded that he wished that he had. Of course. And I'm kind of like, but why didn't you? Like, that is an interesting question. He had the resources to do so if he was talking to someone for his mental health and and had the ability to speak with someone. Man, see, now I'm swinging the pendulum the other way and yeah. thinking maybe he should have said something to, to someone and there could have been some help. Well, you definitely should have. Yeah. But you, but can't, I mean, you can't arrest somebody for thoughts. That's no, the thing. Is like right. you can't arrest somebody or somebody get in trouble for thoughts. But And maybe yeah. maybe you would have lost your family. to Like maybe they would have taken the kids away. But... They would be alive. alive and you have a chance to go back to that. Whereas right. now you don't have that chance. Right. And so Oprah asked him how he felt during this whole event and how he felt afterwards. And he said that he felt very disconnected from what was happening. Mm-hmm. That Again, that it was a task that yeah. he didn't really feel like um, these were his daughters. And when he was asked how he felt afterwards, he was like, well, I knew it was wrong. Yeah. And Oprah was like, so you just killed your daughters. And the only thing that you think of afterwards is this is wrong. You don't think like, oh, my God, I killed my children or, you know, and he was like, nope, that's how like disconnected I was from it. I was just like, oh, this is wrong. It sounds like I'll have to go listen to this for myself, but it sounds like Oprah was not not empathetic, but just not understanding that there's a whole underlying issue for this. Well, this, so this took place in 2006. Oprah interviewed him the following year, mm-hmm. it's 2007. We've come a long way since then mental as health. far as mental yeah. health goes. So we have to give time. That's true. We have to give, you know, understanding to the time we were in. That's true. Um, in fact, there were several episodes where they were talking about manic depression or something like that. And that is now referred to as bipolar disorder, but they're still referring to it by its old name in the podcast episodes. That's like, that's how dated they are. Right. Um, Some of the content doesn't age well. So she, but she is really struggling with the fact that like, again, he is so emotionally disconnected from this. And she's like, she doesn't understand that. She's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Right. This is when Oprah really drives home the fact that David makes a choice not to tell people and he could have alerted anyone at any point to the severity, but didn't because he was afraid of the ramifications and blah, blah, blah. And so they didn't really end on great terms. In fact, David, after the interview, wrote his wife and basically said that he felt like Oprah was being too hard on him. Oh. And his wife was like, well, you were hard on him. And the audience kind of like was like, was she though? Because it sounds like you guys don't really understand what happened here. Right. And there's definitely, I give credit to both parties because they are talking about it in a way that I'm like, you guys do understand that your daughters are gone, right? Right. They are so emotionally disconnected and Oprah is so emotionally invested. Right. And the two are not coming together. And it's creating tension because Kim is going, you're being too hard on my husband and you need to have understanding and you need to this and that. And Oprah's going, your husband killed your daughters. Right. And they're like... They are not getting past that. Right. Whereas, like, there needs to be some more, like, meeting in the middle here. But Oprah's pissed that they're not acknowledging or really emotionally connecting to the fact that he murdered their daughters. 
and they're getting mad that Oprah's not understanding of the fact that he murdered their daughters. Yeah. And it's just, it's very weird. Yeah, they're on either end of a very long bridge. Like, they're not going to meet in the middle anytime soon. Did they, and sorry, if you're going to talk about it, I want to know, did they pursue the pharmaceuticals at all? It doesn't sound like they've been able to. I know that she is very involved in... um, like advocacy for yeah something? for warning labels and stuff like that mm, and okay. like that's something that she is very involved in um but like she was trying to explain in this thing she was like these are the medications that he was on these are the thoughts that he's having and she was like we had convinced him that these were fears that weren't real the bankruptcy that he was fearing was was not real like his financial ruin wasn't real he wasn't gonna lose his job and everything like that so in convincing him that all these other things weren't real he goes oh well, then the fear of killing my family must not be yeah. real. Any other thoughts that he had that yeah. he thought were even a little far-fetched, because he was getting explained to saying everything is not real, he, instead of voicing it and being told again, hey, it's not real, he kept internalizing it right. and saying, I'm telling myself it's not real. I don't have to go and tell anyone. I already know it's not real. Yeah. That's what he was doing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So David is now medication-free. Hmm. Um, apparently it was quite the process and him withdrawing off medications. It caused like violent nightmares. It took years for him to come off of everything. Ultimately, like regardless of his mental health issues that those medications have made everything much worse for him personally. I'm not saying this is the case for everyone. If you are on medication for a mental health issue right now, please do not stop taking it. According to this story. Yeah. (laughs) Like talk to your Talk to your therapist, talk to your doctors. Right. Um, but he felt like that was the best treatment for him. And the hospital staff, or I'm sorry, the prison hospital staff agreed and they are following suit. Um, so he is now medication free. And the family believes that he was misdiagnosed the whole time and was wow. mistreated. That like maybe he was feeling anxious and maybe he was feeling like some bouts of depression. But... Mm not to the point that he was medicated and that it was the medication that was actually compounding the mm-hmm. issues. Um, Kim has said adamantly, and obviously I don't think that this is, you guys are going to be surprised by this, um, she doesn't hold him responsible for the murders. She um. holds the medication responsible for the murders. And they are still married. And she goes to visit him every single week. She lives in the same house. No. And she says that (laughs) one day doesn't erase all the memories that they have in that house. And (sighs) she, on the Oprah show, did a tour of the house and showed the spots in the house where things had occurred. No. And was like, this feels like holy ground to me. And I was like, oh, I just can't relate to that one. No. That's what I mean. It's like they... I don't want to judge too much because I don't know what it's like to lose a child and I don't know what it's like to lose a child in this type of situation. But at the same time, there is part of me that goes, you guys really don't seem to have a grasp on this. Yeah. Any which way, if I knock on wood, if I were to lose a child to something like that, that would be yeah, I my hope, main I hope they're in therapy. Like, oh, I bet. I hope because it sounds like they need to get like some some oh, bearings man. here. It's odd to me. Yeah, if anything, at least it's odd. It is odd. Because yeah. the kids should be the forefront of this whole conversation. And they're not. And they're not. Right. And, they, and their whole website 
is all about David Him. and David's issues and David's medical whatever. And then one of the FAQs was like, do you miss your daughters? And she was like, of course I miss my daughters. But I'm like, this is really the first time you're talking about them in this entire website. And I've been through six pages so far. Wow. She never talks about like the girls' interests, what they like to do, what was going on in school, like anything with their siblings. She never talks about any of that stuff. If and anything, I'm like, just out of remembrance for them, just like a little... That's what I thought. Yeah. Like, that you would at least go like, this was the impact. Right. But the impact piece doesn't seem to be part of it. It's only that, like... She feels like he was wrongly accused. He was set up for failure, basically. Right. I don't know. Which is also part of it. Like, we can't dismiss it. But again, I guess what we're saying is... The conversation should be led with the girls and justice for yes. the girls and maybe potential other victims. Right. Because of the, you know, mistreating of pharmaceuticals or et cetera. But not David should come him. second to them. Right. Not them coming second right. and third to him. Right. It's just bonkers to me. That is weird. Um when she was asked about what she felt like was a correct punishment for him she was like well i struggle with the word punishment and she felt like he should have been arrested but then he should have been treated in a hospital and doesn't believe that he belongs in prison she said at one point she was like david doesn't need my forgiveness but he has asked for my forgiveness and he does have it and i'm like i like there's just i don't i don't know i don't come at me for this one because like if this you're, a tough one. If you're team David and Kim, don't come at me. But at the same time, like I'm not. I'm team Sam and Tess. Yeah. I'm team Sam and Tess. And I don't feel like anyone's really on their team right now. Right. Except Oprah. Oprah's yeah. on their team. Yeah. That's a big that's a big hitter <laughs> she, on your team. She's fiery. <laughs> um But I can see why she was so bothered. Yeah, because when I'm, you I mean, go I'm riled up. This, it's bothersome because yeah. you're like what about your kids? And then when you listen to the actual interview and he's just like, well, I knew it was wrong, but like, so I called 911 and she was like, that's your only thought when you realize that your daughters are dead is, well, I knew it was wrong. You didn't, right. like, there wasn't horror in that? Yeah. And when she was like, what did your girl say when you were killing them? And she, he's like, no. And they said, mommy. And he just says it like super matter of factly and Oprah's like. Is he still medicated when he's talking to Oprah? Yes. Yeah. Significantly medicated. Mm. So he's probably and just so, under, like, super subdued and just, like... And that's what um, Kim said later on, is she felt like they had done the Oprah interview too soon. Mm. Like, David was still medicated. They didn't really have a grasp on everything that had happened. They did it with the intention of, like, bringing awareness. Oprah did it with the intention of, like, understanding how something like this happens. And they just, like, really didn't see eye to eye on the intention. Um... But yeah, she basically, like, Kim was like, we did this too soon. Yeah. But. I can see why she said that, but, I mean. Yeah, he just seems like, I don't know. I can see why Oprah was annoyed. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. For sure. So, that is the story of Sam and Tess Crespi, who were murdered by their father, David. Interesting. And that's what I got. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got today, and we thank you for listening. If you haven't done so already, we invite you to check out our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Stranger Danger Podcast. And 
I we've been given TikTok a shot. So if you haven't followed us there already, please go over and, and follow us. Um, and maybe tag us in videos that you would like us to do because some of them are just too funny to pass up. So there's that. And thank you again for listening. Bye. Bye. All right. So I don't have a what the Florida, but in light of current events, Portland is full of crazy stories that, um, can definitely fill up an entire podcast. So I am going to tell you the quick update slash charges that have been brought on this man. So Matthew Hester is a Portland native and he hired his ex-wife to kill his then current wife. He was recently charged with um, the conspiracy to commit murder and murder charges. Uh, He conspired with his ex-wife and another person named Aaron McCraw to kill his wife. The ex-wife came in from, I believe, Idaho into Portland um, to his wife's apartment, ground-level apartment, took out the AC on one of the windows, went inside, and stabbed the woman. Um, oh, my God. So they were, were he was discharged with... Uh, with the with the murder and um she was stabbed more than 60 times six zero um by the ex-wife allegedly looks like a piece of work she was extradited from idaho just recently um her dna was found inside of the house as well as on the knife lock in the kitchen and they also found surveillance video that showed her traveling to and from the apartment so it was pretty easy to find that she was the culprit in all this but eventually they found out that it was a um a hit a hire for murder type situation that the husband had hired his ex-wife to kill his current wife oh my gosh yeah so portland is full of stories right now unfortunately i'm ready to move oh gosh yeah yeah. Cheyenne and I decided we're moving to New Zealand. New Zealand. <laughs> Although, given their recent lockdown and what's happening over there, I think that's off the table. Yeah. I think we had a listener. I think they're in Australia. And they're like, I'm in a lockdown for the next two, three weeks. I was like, God, man. That's what you thought. Yeah. <laughs> now they're like, they're like over a month in. Yeah. And I think yeah. they're heading on like, what, six weeks? Yeah. You tell us. So thank you for listening. I hope we're giving you enough content to keep you busy. But um, if you're ever bored, just Google Portland. Yep. <laughs> Portland true crime. And um, I'm sure you have endless amounts of content just like Florida. And we will have a bonus episode this week. So yes. make sure you look for that. It'll come up midweek. With yes. Listener stories. That'll be a fun one. Bye.